welcome to We Are History, the laughable attempt at a podcast with me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Angela, you tweeted that you're wearing roller skates. I am wearing roller... I've got new roller skates, John, and I've been away for the weekend and they arrived... Well, they arrived on Friday and my neighbour took them in and she just brought them round to me before we started recording. So, and I couldn't wait. So I, I've got my new roller boots on. Right, okay. So Very that's, exciting. That's... Do you want to see them? Yeah, Hang on. hold them up. Actually, I'll show you the other side because the other side's got a pretty little rose on. Lovely, it's ah. lovely. Can I just say, a bit weird, a bit weird podcasting in roller skates, but, you know, it's a new thing. <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, well, I'm, as I said, I'm... Um, I'm recording this bouncing up and down on a space hopper. So uh, <laughs> I hope that works for both of us. I know. I'm having a midlife crisis, John. I think, well, and that doesn't need explaining, does it? I'm sitting here in roller skates and I'm 44. Um, <laughs> so um, fine. let's get on with the history. Now, normally if one of us is leading on a subject and Angela is leading on this week's subject, she chose this, then the yep. other one introduces the show. That's the way we sort of try and balance it out a bit. But yes. I don't even know how to pronounce the subject that Angela has, <laughs> Angela has chosen this week. How do you say it, Angela? It's a bit of a tongue twister this. Today we're going to be talking about the Agapemonites. Agapemonites. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Agapemonites. Yeah. The spelling and the... I, From your study of ancient Greek, Greek at your, extraction. your private yeah. school that you were... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> private school, yeah, right. Agapemonites <laughs> is what we're going with. It, I'm sure if we're wrong, somebody will let us know. The abode um, of love. It means the abode of love. Abode it's of Greek. Love. It means the abode of love. You have love. to say you that. You do it in that voice <laughs> all the way through. You have through. to say it like Barry White. You can't say abode of love without sounding like Barry White. <laughs> the abode love. of love. So so this, John, yes. I mean, we think about cults as being quite, uh, A, being quite a 20th century phenomenon, Yeah. really, you know, with your Jonestowns and, yeah. your, you know, and, and being quite, well, let's be honest, quite American. Yeah. Right. But religious sects and cults go way back. And God damn it, we have a British so, cult. We've we're oh, we're gonna do one about a British cult, and it makes you proud to be British. <laughs> <laughs> Our religious yes. narcissists can be just as dodgy as the Americans. Exactly, some badge of pride. So the the one we're going to talk about today is the Agapemonites. Yep. Can you say that, John? Agapemonites. Repeat after me. Agapemonites. Oh, the Agapemonites. Nice. <laughs> the Agapemonites. The Agapemonites. So this cult, sect, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, it ran for 110 years. Wow. So it was pretty successful as far as cults go. Um, and it's what's known as a millenarian sect. Oh, yes. That um, would be for another. So you've done the ancient Greek now. You're now going to hit me with the Latin. And <laughs> Now I'm going to hit you with the Latin. Millenarian comes from millenarius, which means containing a thousand. Uh-huh. It's a belief by a religious, social or political group or movement in a coming fundamental transformation of society after which all things will be changed. Yeah. It's always quite large so, scale, isn't it? It's never like, and the coming of the Lord will come, and um, henceforth, supermarkets will be la- better laid out, and the fromage frame will be with the yogurts <laughs> and not with the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's always a bit more global yeah, than yeah. that. And it's usually to do with the second coming, yeah, obviously. Of um, you know, and then after that, there'll be a day of judgment, and yeah. all non-believers will perish or whatever. And So when's this one, then? So... This one, we're, we're in 1840s Britain uh, at the moment. So if you remember your, your history for that, the gap between rich and poor, ever-growing. Yes, and it's changing as revolution people are, and, yeah. Exactly. So people are moving from the countryside to these industrial roles in the city. Um, and wealth now belongs to the merchant class as well as your landed gentry. So some right? people so coming the, into money who might not have had money down the centuries, some families. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, in... 1846, a man who called himself the Holy Ghost. Oh, yeah. Not his real name. Not his real name. He set up home with his soul bride. Soul bride. John. In a tiny (laughs) summer's village. This is going to get... I mean... (laughs) I'm so glad I'm not recording this one in your bedroom. (laughs) We did that once, Angela. We did that once. It was to do with the wireless, okay? And that that one was on Paris, wasn't it? The romantic city. City of love. That's right, yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I lean into the mic now, every time I do that. <laughs> you, you're auditioning for a job at Magic FM, aren't you, John? Mm, we're mumbling around midnight here for the smooth hour. <laughs> Where was this? The village of Saxton in Somerset. 
is the tabloids. Uh, if it was now, it would be it's been dubbed Sexton. <laughs> Read all about it. Henry Henry and his secret love tryst. Yeah, unfortunately, it was all a bit more sedate then, wasn't it? With the newspaper, yeah, it was, it was just front page. Yeah, it's another advert for snuff and ladies' hats. <laughs> was it Saxton or Spaxton? It's Spaxton. Oh, did Spaxton. I say Sax? I think you said Saxton. Spax- I think it's Spaxton. It's Spaxton. Yeah, yes, it is it, Spaxton. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. misspelled it in my notes there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Spexton doesn't work, does it? No, Just they spe- all wear glasses. It, they, it's yeah, been, no, they'll still say Sexton. They don't care about oh, yeah, how bad the pun is, these people. <laughs> Just a little aside here, John. Yeah. Right? That, yeah. As I was reading about this, because I do always you think of cult leaders are usually men. Yeah. Right? But um, I came across this woman who I think maybe we should bookmark this for a future podcast called Joanna Southcott, um, who proclaimed to be the Messiah in the 18th century. That's oh, quite good interesting. Oh, good for her. It's a woman making it in a man's world. Yeah. So every now and then these sort of messianic cults <laughs> would yes. pop up. So let's start from the beginning. Who was this holy ghost? Well, yeah. he was a man called Henry James Prince. Okay. And he'd been training in medicine at Guy's Hospital and when he finished his training, he was given a position at a hospital in Bath, which is right. where he lived. Um, but he became ill. Now, I can't find out what this illness was, whether okay. it was sort of uh, psychological or physical or what. But he was forced to give up his position. And at that point, decides to pursue a life in the clergy. In the meantime, he's having an affair with his widowed mother's lodger, who's a much older woman. Okay. So he's in his 20s. It doesn't, I can't work out exactly how old she is, but it sounds like she's pretty old. And she's a wealthy spinster. What sort of spinster was she? A wealthy one, John. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's sad. I think that might be a fact. I think that might be mentioned for a reason. So she pays for him to go to St. David's College, which is um, an Anglican college in Lampeter in Wales, right. uh, to do his theological training. Right. Now, at this time, in the sort of early to mid-19th century, yeah. evangelical Christianity is really taking hold in America. Yeah. Right? So you've got Mormonism started in the 1820s. You've got the Adventists in the 1840s. And the Anglican Church here was concerned about the spread of this sort of noisy ideology. Yes, yeah, so we're much more sedate in this country. Aren't we? The Church of England is much more low-key. The, Ameri- yeah. I mean, the, the Americans are like... Give us your whole life to the church and your income and your children. And the CV is more like sort of a, would it be all right if you helped with the flowers in the vestry? Exactly. <laughs> exactly that. You could make some jam for the faith. That yes. would be, that's perfectly fine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we did a whole podcast, didn't we, on sort of tele-evangelism and yes, stuff exactly, of the yes, 20th century. Right which, yeah. so, but this, it, it all began, really, in the, in the early 19th century. St David's College, though, in Lampeter was a sort of old-school Anglican college, and it was set up to try and counteract this influx of evangelical Christianity. They wanted to stop the flow of it, so they were training up more Anglican priests. And it was typically sort of the younger sons of noblemen, um, you know, with yes. their sense of entitlement, like church. drinking claret, all yeah. a bit bullying, Denny. Yeah. Um, you know, and and really exercising superiority over the congregations they were put before. You know. Yes, yeah, so it was always the idea that the eldest son inherited the estate, and the next one sort of became an officer in the army, and the third one became a vicar, wasn't it? It's like that was the um, sons of the posh. Um, so this Holy Ghost was basically Henry Prince was he was he was the Holy Ghost formerly known as Prince in fact <laughs> he was <laughs> very nice John I see what you did there um, so he was twenty six he's at this college and he was appalled by this sort of laissez faire attitude that the students and the tutors had to to this religion he felt they weren't being zealous enough All right. right. So he found a small group of like-minded students that also weren't so much into the claret drinking and being posh. Um, and they formed something called the Lampeter Brethren. So within St. David's right. College in Lampeter, there was this sort of group of, of more zealous, young, trainee priests. The modern equivalent would be forming your own political party. Lawrence Fox or, you know, Alex yeah, Salmon. yeah. <laughs> and they would interrupt church services with their sort of fire and brimstone stuff. Wow. Um, they didn't like this idea of the sort of comfortable life of the country vicar that they were being trained for. They wanted to shake things up a bit. So they'd, um, they'd, they'd interrupt vicars in their sermons. That's rude, isn't it? They really? were. That's quite, quite rude, isn't it? That must it? have caused some serious tutting. <laughs> Can you imagine the outrage? But the, the college couldn't do anything about them because... because they did well in their studies. Oh, okay. Better than all the others because they were more... Zealous. Rigorous, were, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. So 
Prince would write these, so he's 26 at the time, and he would write these long rambling letters back to Martha, his elderly spinster, say elderly, yes, I'd yes. Say she's probably about 40, but yeah. he would woo her with the Bible's erotic Song of Solomon, John. Yeah, I now, know. I didn't really know there was any, ero I, I'm, this may surprise you, John, not <laughs> a Bible scholar. Right, you um, never went to Lampeter. Never went to Lampeter. <laughs> I've not even been christened, John. I'm, a, I'm like neither. proper, me proper neither. heathen. Me neither, yeah. But the Bible has dirty bits, apparently. It has dirty bits. Now, I think more people would get into the Bible if they yeah. advertise the dirty bits. I think we're probably, um, we're probably talking degrees here. It's no Fifty Shades of Grey, let's be honest. Well, probably not, no. But apparently the Song of Solomon is quite fruity. Right. Um, and, and this was an appealing book to the young priest. Well, it yeah. would be, wouldn't it? You yeah, know, they didn't yeah. have Pornhub in these days, John. You know. They didn't? You, you know, they didn't even have Razzle in the Bushes in these days. So... <laughs> You know, you have to say, and he's at an age becoming aware of his sexuality, and, um, and that yeah. he believed that the Song of Solomon, its underlying message was that the church was the bride of Christ, right. and this appealed to his growing sort of religious obsession, and it would form the basis of these strange beliefs that come later. Okay. So the Song of Solomon is, which I meant to read before today, but I haven't, John, because you know. Yeah, because you don't want that I'll, on your search history, do you? I don't want that on my search. <laughs> what do have that you been incognito at? mode all, all right, it was bible extracts i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> so anyway henry marries martha this wealthy spinster yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1838 but he insists that their marriage be in inverted commas in spirit only and that there be no carnal relations so either he really was that devout yes. or she was just a rich minger. Oh, I can't One believe you said that. As a feminist, <laughs> you call her a rich minger. Well, we'll come on to the spirit wives yeah, aspect yeah. a bit more in a minute, but it does all seem very odd for a sort of a man obsessed with the Song of Solomon and this sort of biblical erotica to kind of have these wives that yeah. were, where, yeah. where they had to be celibate. Anyway. Yeah. He eventually graduates St. David's College and he's given the curacy of a church in this small place called Charlinch in Somerset. Um, and when he arrived, the incumbent priest there, a Reverend Samuel Starkey, he wasn't around. He'd taken himself off to the Isle of Wight because he thought he was dying and he wanted to die on the Isle of Wight. Well, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? <laughs> then you don't feel so bad about it. <laughs> yeah, nobody would notice, would they? So it's fine. Um, so... Because the incumbent priest wasn't there, Prince just starts preaching his hellfire and damnation to this poor congregation. God, yeah, you imagine, Somerset, like, obviously yeah. everybody goes to church. We have to remember that. Oh, it's not true. like yeah, today yeah. when it would be, you know, four it's, people. Yeah. <laughs> They've probably had this lovely country vicar giving his lovely little... And suddenly... And he's like, you're all going to die! <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, my God. And funnily enough, the, the locals weren't that impressed right. and his wife eventually she took herself back to bath she did because i think they weren't particularly welcome in the village no um and she probably also wasn't that impressed at her spiritual marriage yeah you know, give, she... give him all this money and uh, yeah. this handsome young 28 year old and what does he do yeah he yeah, says we're celibate exactly so she goes back to bath now meanwhile on the isle of wight this priest starkey who's apparently dying he receives a printed copy of one of prince's sermons so somebody from the congregation has sent him right a, a transcript of one of the sermons which he later claimed starkey later claimed was what jolted him back to health it always works for me always sermon. post that to me i feel much better <laughs> <laughs> So he actually, like, he really loved the sermon and he returned to Charlinch with this sort of renewed vigour, like suddenly he oh, wasn't dying anymore. And unlike everyone else in the parish, he completely fell under this cu his curate's spell. He oh, I see. Okay, I wasn't totally expecting that. That's a good twist, good twist, Angela. I was expecting him to come back cross, but he's, no, oh, this is the no. truth, the way and the light. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I'm so, starting to fall under his spell now, Angela, as you talk about it. I can see I, it in your eyes, John. I can see it. I'm going to give you all my money. Actually, Angela, are you a wealthy spinster? <laughs> did you see that? I it was did. so funny. Mark Watson tweeted a thing that there's this website that estimates the wealth of wealth celebrities. In inverted commas of celebrities. And um, yeah, had me down, John, as being between one and eight million dollars, which I'd quite like to see some of that. Now, you're getting married this year. Are you sure that Matt isn't marrying you because he wants to build a church? I don't know where he thinks I'm hiding it. I mean, Christ. 
Oh One to eight million dollars. Uh, presumably, the... they're like Zimbabwean dollars. Oh, maybe, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe. I, I, just, I don't know. I wouldn't take too much notice of what's on the internet. Well, no, quite. <laughs> the idea that I searched my own name to see what they said. <laughs> that's almost <laughs> the you? same as you. One to eight million dollars. It's like really? Just, yeah. Maybe just they just think all comedians are worth yeah. one to eight million dollars. I mean, that's I've ridiculous, isn't it? One to eight million. That little. Ooh. I mean, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, like for you, Mr. King of the West End, you yeah, must day, be raking it in. <laughs> got my radio four repeats <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we're making millions on this podcast exactly obviously. exactly that's what they you based know. it on yeah 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 before we started doing we are history they had me down as 50 quid like <laughs> so i interrupted you i shouldn't interrupt Sorry, wealth- yes, so- I-, I interrupted you wealthy spinster so <laughs> <laughs> so prince is preaching to this poor congregation that the end of history is nigh john oh, no. which is massive bummer for this podcast oh no <laughs> i know i don't know don't know how to break it to you john oh, well, but this might the be se- the final that's, episode that's the end of the series everyone <laughs> thanks for listening if when the world is being destroyed if you could just give us five stars that would be great yeah. <laughs> oh dear he said only those who believed would find salvation in an earthly paradise and that's the thing isn't it that's what yeah. these cults they always do, do. They okay. always do. It's like yeah it's like the the worst thing's gonna happen but you can be saved by a giving us all your money and b believing that i am the second coming it's sort of an insurance scam isn't it really yeah very much so very much so so um on one sunday in 1841 yeah reverend starkey so he's yeah. back in the parish right he's, yeah he's doing and his back job preaching to his congregation but he's bought into henry prince's ways religion yeah his cult yeah. yeah and so he takes to the pulpit to deliver this sermon and he finds himself dumbstruck John, oh no he can't speak no words would come out he's gesticulating wildly he's groaning but he can't speak right? sunday morning though you're gonna have a hangover aren't you well, you know i mean it could be any number of <laughs> things john but obviously what it actually was as prince right. told the congregation was that the holy ghost had left the priest oh, no. right so mm. they're gonna have to pray for his soul yeah. which they did and then the following week it happened again and word begins to spread right and people begin to turn up to the village to see this mad parson again john remember no netflix yeah not much right? entertainment back then no netflix <laughs> not much else to do so if there's a mad priest in the next village you might as well go yeah, and have yeah. a butchers right yeah so um prince every week would lead the prayers for him and then one sunday in november dearly beloved in- we are gathered here today <laughs> exactly well after weeks of him just you know gasping and not being able to speak at the pulpit yeah. suddenly john his voice comes back and he delivers his sermon to these now packed pews right the church is now heaving right and henry prince of course calls it a miracle yeah heavily implying that he had a hand in it somewhere because he was the one leading the prayers right right and suddenly, Charlinch, this tiny little place in Somerset, becomes home to this sort of noisy religious revival. So, so basically, Starkey had a sore throat, then got yep. better, and it was yep. a religious miracle. Essentially, John, yes. <laughs> yeah. okay. But who are we to argue with yeah. that? We no. don't know, well, do we, John? We don't the know. The Lord works in mysterious ways. People started flocking to the church. Prayer groups, ladies' groups were formed. Wow. And members of, of this... Uh, Lampeter Brethren that he'd set oh, up yeah. at his college, they were called on to come and help sort of trumpet this message that the end of history would be marked by an earthly paradise for the saved. The Lampeter Brethren, did they all have it on the back of their jackets and stuff? Like sort of, you know, like the jocks <laughs> like in the 50s. In yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, <laughs> or the pink ladies. <laughs> Any locals that didn't buy into his prophecy, yeah. he intended to ban them from the church. So bearing in mind again... To be yeah. banned from your local church, that's a big, that's going to get a big you... big deal when there's only one church. Outcast yeah. in yeah. your village as well, yeah. you know. But this upset a lot of the you know pillars of the local community. Didn't want to buy into it, but also didn't want to be seen as yeah, rejecting they, the church. They want to know. go to hell. <laughs> no, funnily enough, they weren't keen on that idea. So the Bishop of Bath and Wells was told about this chaos going yeah. on in, in Charlie. This little village, yeah. And he decided something needed to be done. Um, especially as there were rumours of, in inverted commas, carnal insinuations oh. with female parishioners, right? Victorian England. Yeah, so this is where we get the first sort of hint that Prince, with the slightly younger, more attractive members of the congregation... Not so celibate with them, is he? So the um, the bishop, Bishop of Arthur Wells, he summons the Reverend Starkey to, to meet with him um, and 
you know, basically tells him he needs to get shot of this Reverend Prince, this yeah, young curate. So Starkey goes back with the news. Um, now, as it happened, by the time he gets back, Martha, Prince's old First wife, wife yeah. spirit spirit wife, yeah. um, she's died. Right, So he's gone back to Bath. So it allowed things to calm down a little bit. He had to go back to Bath to deal with his wife's death. Um, so, so he's inherited all this money from her. Exactly. And he didn't mourn for long. I don't know. I'm not married yet. So I don't no. know what, how long you're supposed to mourn An afternoon. An afternoon. Just as long An as it takes to get to the bank, get to the deposit I mean, account. Within a couple of weeks, he had then married Starkey's sister. Oh, Reverend Starkey's lovely. sister, Julia. Oh. In another of these spiritual wife arrangements with no okay. consummation. Did she have a few um, quid stashed away, Angela? Well, funny you should say that, John. She was another older woman with her own wealth, <laughs> okay. yes. Um, this reminds me of that Mrs. Merton interview with Debbie McGee. Do you remember yes, what first right. attracted you to millionaire Paul Daniels? Oh, what a great line. <laughs> uh, brilliant line. Um, now, he did return to Charlinch from Bath um, yep. to save souls. Uh, but it seems, John, yeah. he concentrated his energy on the sort of younger, prettier and more female souls. If that is what village. God is guiding him to do, then that, who are we you to know, question? Yeah. He, who can he question what yeah. he's being channelled to do, John? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that's that. take that up with God. Yeah, but it, did this, this probably say. annoyed the menfolk a bit, did it? Well, they weren't happy, uh, funnily enough. Um, and eventually the bishop got wind of it again and he revokes... Prince's license to preach in that diocese completely. Right. But the Reverend Starkey, he decides to go in with Prince. Right. Wow. He says, okay, well, Prince goes, I go too. And that's what happened. So they've now been sort of banished from the Church of England and they decide to take to the road. It's the uh, Radio sort of, One Roadshow. The Radio One Roadshow of <laughs> travelling. Yeah. Religious um, fervour. Religious fervour. Yeah. Um, so they first head to Suffolk. So, um, yeah, getting getting religious further going in Suffolk's no easy job, is it? Not easy, no. No, just no. you slow down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go there for two years and okay. uh, they do, they manage to rouse the local population to a religious fervour, John. Which... Oh, blimey. Have you been to Southwold? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, my, my fellow's parents live in Kessingland. Oh, okay. I don't think much fervour happens there. They get no. excited there's a new car in the cul-de-sac. <laughs> but um, eventually the Bishop of Ely, who's yeah. quite tolerant, John, yeah. he, he, it's a bit too much even for him. He requests that Prince maybe take his services elsewhere. Okay. So this is the final straw for Prince. If the C of E don't want him, you know, he is the visible manifestation of God on earth, John. Fair, Why would they would not want him? Yeah. You know, he says, fine, I don't want them. And this is where he completely breaks his ties now from the C of E. Um, he announces his separation from the church and he moves his preaching operations to the south coast. All right, Because here on the south coast, John, we're a little bit yeah, of course you're down there, aren't open, you? I'm speaking to you on know, the south yeah. coast. Yeah, that's right. I'm here in Brighton, which he came to Brighton. Starkey went to Weymouth, right? And Prince came to Brighton, and he actually he had a chapel in the North Lane area of Brighton uh, called Cave Adullam. Okay. Adullam, Adullam okay. uh, was his chapel. And here, amongst the elderly spinsters and young unmarried ladies of Victorian society, John Prince found his true congregation. Yeah, Again, I can see the appeal. Yeah, it's where, it's where God directed him. Um, then in Weymouth, they eventually they set up a prototype. Ag oh, dear. OK, here we go. Here's the word. Agapemony. Agapemony. That's good. You said it with confidence. It's good. Agapemony, um, which is Greek for abode of love. We've said, I think we'll call it abode of love. That's now, from now. We'll just place. say abode of love. Just, we know we mean agapemony. Yeah. Um, uh, so they built the original Agapemony. Yeah. In a large house in Belfield Terrace in Weymouth. Oh, that, what do you expect? Belfield Terrace, Weymouth. I mean, that's that's classic. That is that's well known. <laughs> it's, they've got hot tubs in the garden around there. I've heard yeah. the rumours. I've seen it on next door. Campus grass out the front. <laughs> that's it. I mean, it's always a clue. <laughs> now he wasn't. He wasn't the first person to have the idea of building an abode of love. Um, similar experiments have also been inspired by that sexy old Song of Solomon. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, what is sexy about the Song of Solomon? Is it like Shatame or something? That's like all groaning and... <laughs> <laughs> or Donna all, Summer, you, you know, I feel love. Without... You know. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and read the Song of Solomon because yeah, it might yeah. be, you know, we're, we're taking the mickey, but it might be really sexy, John. <laughs> it might be. So these places have been conceived before, but they'd all been condemned by the church as sinful and degenerate. Yeah. Now, although the name 
it does imply abode of love, a sort of unlimited sexual freedom, one of those yes. sorts of cults. I don't think it was quite the sort of orgiastic picture that you're imagining right now. I'm not imagining um, it, Angela. I'm Googling it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It was to be a spiritual love, Joe. Uh, Honest oh, girl. Yeah. That's, that's oh, I went out with a girl like that once. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a spirit wife, John? <laughs> um, of course, what he actually did, he invented this sort of system of angels and archangels in which he would sort of promote and demote his followers at will. Oh, my God. You know, so if you didn't give enough money or, you, yeah. you know, you weren't in favour at the time, you didn't dig into your pockets then you might get demoted and and obviously you wanted to you wanted your place at the gates of heaven right yeah, so you had like, to yeah god it's like click on the link or your internet will be disconnected it's that sort of hell <laughs> exactly exactly so um he encouraged them to donate for the cause ensure their place in heaven and right. if they didn't they were demoted john and that was scary so we're in weymouth at the minute yeah. and this band of what became known as the agapemonites they begin to swell yes. right and they they preached that the Lamb of God was coming, right? i.e. the second coming. There would be a day of judgment. Right. Why is it always a lamb though, out of interest? Why is it never a kitten, the kitten of God or the cockapoo puppy? <laughs> I think you'd get more people interested. You would. These it days it would be, and yeah. behold, the cockapoo puppy of God. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, of course, the other thing they preached, John, was that property was evil. So okay. your best bet was to sell all your things and give your money to them. Right. Makes sense. Still, yeah, people are still getting away with this today, but yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. Now, the revelation yeah. eventually comes in the assembly rooms at the Royal Hotel in Weymouth. <laughs> That's hilarious. Which seems a perfectly reasonable place for the yeah. revelation of the Messiah. Yeah. Um, although I did look it up on TripAdvisor, John. Only three and a half stars. Oh, yeah. That's because um, it hasn't come yet. They're so disappointed. Well, surprisingly, no reference at all on TripAdvisor of the second coming. Yeah. There but you go. Royal Hotel um, in Weymouth. That's one of the great religious sites of the world, though, isn't it? It sort of goes well, it, Jerusalem, Mecca, Royal Hotel in Weymouth. That's... Exactly. <laughs> but it was at the Royal Hotel in Weymouth that Reverend Henry Prince himself announced yeah. that he, none other than he, John, what yeah. luck, is the son of God. He was right there under oh, their noses the whole time, yeah. right? And of course, only those who receive Prince as the son of God are going to be saved from Armageddon. So apparently 500 souls were saved that day, were there to witness the revelation at the Royal Hotel in Weymouth. Uh, they were mostly, John, well, what do you think they were mostly? Uh, would they have been wealthy spinsters, Angela? They were mostly wealthy spinsters. <laughs> so at the end of that day, saving 500 souls of wealthy spinsters, he must have been counting up those banknotes. It's like, oh how, my many, God. how many wealthy souls have we saved this day? It's like, we're laughing all the way to the bank, I bet he was. Absolutely. Now, around this time, Prince had crossed paths with somebody called William Cobb, who was right. a wealthy engineer, uh, quite a famous engineer. He worked with Isambard Kingdom Brunel, no less. Okay. He began following the teachings of Reverend Prince and he gave him some land in nearby Spaxton. Ah, dun, dun, dun. In Somerset, yeah. So now, with all this money from all these wealthy spinsters, they could afford to design and build Prince's vision of an earthly paradise. Oh, yes. So, and then every time it's going to be like grand designs, we're falling behind and the, we need more money. So we need some more wealthy spinsters. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly what they did. Whenever the project needed a cash boost, he would encourage his flock to either sell a bit more for the Lord or he hit upon this idea of getting his male followers to marry more wealthy spinsters. That's hilarious. Just like he'd done. So it's like um, Kevin McLeod going, well, you're over budget on your... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, some more wealthy spinsters coming my way. So we're going to build the extension and uh, we're going to put a new uh, wall here. Another wealthy spinster. Seems to be a lot of wealthy <laughs> spinsters around, if you don't mind me saying so. Angela. I mean, did they have their own Facebook group or something? <laughs> <laughs> When you think about it, there would be because, um, you know, if you weren't married off, you would yeah. inherit. And that's the only way women would have money is if they were spinsters. Oh, right. OK. It's a very the pejorative way they word, isn't it, spinster? Like bachelor sounds like you're having yeah. a great party time. Spinster has this sort of image of a sort of a, a sort of woman with glasses sort of working yeah. as a librarian. My friend Joe, who I went to school with, who is my age, she yeah. wants to reclaim the word spinster. She's, yeah. That's her... Because she's a, you know, in her mid forties now, single, comfortably yeah. off. She's like, I'm a spinster, and I think it's great. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that great film, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, when George Bailey goes back to uh, his hometown to see what it'd be like if he'd never been born. 
And the whole place is like this sort of gambling and it's called renamed Pottersville and everyone's drinking. And he goes, uh, what about what about Mary? He goes, she never married, George. She never married. She's, like she's the working worst in the library. fate that can befall and, a woman. She's wearing glasses. So yeah. in, this, in this world of It's a Wonderful Life where uh, he never, she never met him, her eyesight goes and she works. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was having to do a lot of masturbating, George. Because so, she was a spinster. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about this uh, place in Spaxton. So they build the abode of love, John. Go on, you abode say it in your voice. Abode of love. <laughs> and it, cons- it, was a, it consisted of a great house with 18 bedrooms, yeah. sitting rooms, dining rooms, servants' quarters, and wow. then the spacious grounds were dotted with outhouses, stables, conservatories, gazebos. Hot tubs. <laughs> Garden cottages, hot tubs, a swing ball. Swing ball. Somewhere to roller skate, Angela. <laughs> That's right. And in one corner, it had its own chapel, uh, which became known as Eden. Oh. And it um, was furnished with easy chairs and settees. And of course, John, like there is in every good chapel, a billiard table. Oh, well, that's from the Bible. That's from the yeah. Song of Solomon, I expect. If we ever get around to read it, it's probably loads about billiards. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole the whole place was surrounded by this high brick wall, which okay. I don't know if that was designed to keep prying eyes out or keep them in, or a bit, of both. Both. bit of both. And in the yeah. summer of 1846, the right. group, the Agapemonites, they move into the abode of love in this village of Spaxton. And pretty soon, Henry Prince, son of God, right. was going by the name... Beloved. Ah, oh, that's nice. So he's been the Holy Ghost and now he's called Beloved. He's yep. sort of got airs and graces, this bloke, if you don't mind saying so. I think that's a fair, <laughs> fair uh, assessment of oh, so what, Reverend what do the locals, John What do the locals think of this? Well, the locals are um, slightly intrigued by what's going on behind those brick walls because no one's really allowed in. Next door to the estate with an adjoining wall was a pub called the Lamb Inn. Oh. which over the next hundred years would play host to a lot of journalists and writers and the like trying to find out exactly what went on. And and if it wasn't for COVID, maybe that's where we would have gone and recorded this oh, podcast. Nice that would thought. have been nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> we'll take a little break here, John. I've got all my stuff on an eBay auction because I'm selling it in order to secure my place in heaven. Of course. So I'm just going to go and check how that's doing. See how you can actually get for your roller skates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, we'll be back after these words from our sponsors. Hello, welcome back to part two. We're talking about the abode of love. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to have a swing at Agapemonites. Oh, I'm going to have another go then, Angela. We're talking about the Agapemonites. Is that <laughs> so right? Close. Really? So, the, Ag- the Agapemonites. Agapemonites. Pemonites. Pemonites. The abode of love. <laughs> the abode of so love. So there's some scandals. There's some scandals. We're in the village of Somerset. Uh, they're all we behind are. a wall, and there's, you know, young women. In their lovely little Victorian lace dresses, skipping around this messiah. Uh, I can see the movie now, Angela. I'm sort of already, <laughs> I've already developing the screenplay in my head. Um, does the scandal get out? Well, there's a few scandals that hit the community in its yeah. hundred years, but we'll look at a couple of them. And the first is quite a sad story okay. of a woman called Louisa Nottage. Okay. It's a story that, however you look at it, really sort of goes to reinforce just how much a woman at this time was property of the men in her life. And if yeah. it wasn't her husband, it was her father and her brothers. Yeah. Um, and had they had very little agency of, of their own. Yeah. Um, so Louisa Nottage, she was one of 10 siblings. Right. And they came from a quite religious family. And in 1843, the family had seen Henry Prince when he was doing his tours right. preaching. And when their father died the following year in 1844, the five unmarried sisters. Oh my God! So there's a, there's a the rich see father dies, going, leaving John? all the money to five sisters. He's going. Mm, maybe mm-hmm. I can help them in some way. Yeah. So the five unmarried sisters were persuaded to donate their money to the abode of love. So they right. each had an inheritance of six thousand pounds, which at this time yeah. was a phenomenal amount of money. So in 1845, they travel to Somerset with the view of living in the abode of love community. <laughs> yeah, you can't say it as good as you can't me. say it like that. <laughs> And as I've said before, you know, Prince has cottoned onto this idea of marrying off his closest brethren, or as he called them, saints, um, to wealthy spinsters. So on the journey to Somerset, three of the five Nottage sisters that were making the journey, uh, Harriet, Agnes and Clara, were persuaded to marry his brethren. 
And they were married the same day in Swansea. <laughs> right, no bash, mucking about. Bash, you want to marry him? Bash, Let's do it now queue. before you change your mind. Yeah. Wow. And of course, this is before the passage of the Married Women's Property Act of 1882. So immediately on marriage, all of a wife's assets pass automatically to her husband, oh, okay. never to return They've to changed her. all that now. It's like political yeah. correctness gone mad. <laughs> and, of course, these unions with these wealthy sisters to their <laughs> brethren were spiritual unions, i.e. non-carnal. Right, okay. It's fair to say these sisters were somewhat pushed into it, right? They're on the yeah. journey to there and they've sort of been pushed into this idea of having these spirit marriages yeah. and then being sort of all their... All your money, all your money now belongs to the church, yeah. Now belongs to the, the brethren. Yeah, yeah. So um, they were told they were no longer allowed contact with their families. They were completely cut off from the rest of their family and they were taken off to Spaxton. Now, Agnes was the oldest and she was the first to become properly disillusioned with this setup, right. um, especially when she discovered her marriage was going to be celibate. Um, yeah, yeah I, she, I have she, to say, I don't understand the celibate bit. I mean, you'd think that you know, as a sort of narcissist, sort of religious cult leader, that Henry would be the vessel for the seed of the love god, wouldn't you? And that, mm. I think we'll change this bit for the movie, Angela. I think we'll make him, <laughs> we'll have him shagging all well, of them. Well, I think it, the rumours seem to be that he was a vessel for the seed of the love god <laughs> if you were a young, nubile parishioner. Uh, okay. Although okay. that was very much, you know, not talked about and not, yeah, okay. if that well, was happening, it wasn't in the open. It's going to be in our trailer. Um, it's going to be the trailer of the movie. <laughs> okay. But I, I don't know if it was just these older women he wasn't that into or if he genuinely believed that the marriage was you know more yeah. sanctified by being celibate i don't know only he can answer that the psychology of all this is really interesting whether he really believed he'd persuaded himself that he was the mm. son of god and that he was on this mission and it just so chimed with what he deep down really wanted to do which was shag lots of you know beautiful young yeah. women it's same with all these other christians that we looked at in the uh, televangelism one i think they sort of persuaded themselves of their own fantasies do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's quite easy to believe yeah. your own hype eventually, isn't it? If enough people yeah. are egging yeah. you on and yeah. falling for it, then yeah. It's an interesting psychological... Somebody should do a, um, a thesis on the you know the psychology of uh, cult leaders. I wonder if that's ever been done, John. <laughs> <laughs> now, Henry Prince has persuaded the youngest of the siblings, which is Louisa, yeah. that she should also come and join them at the abode. Right. With her six grand inheritance as well, of course. Of course. Now, Agnes, she writes to Louisa to try to persuade her not to come. Right. She says, look, it's not what you think it is here. I'm in a celibate marriage. I've had to give over all my money. I'm married to someone, who, you know, yeah. don't come. Now, by this time, Agnes was also pregnant, not oh. by her spiritual husband. Someone's doing it. Someone's doing it, right? <laughs> so when Beloved discovered this yeah. and that she'd written this letter to her sister... She was just cast out of the community as a fallen woman, right? Completely Blimey. discredited. Don't listen to what your sister says. She's up the daft, right? right she's she's right. fallen woman. That's Woman gets the blame, Angela. Of course. We don't know who fathered her child. It apparently wasn't her husband, in inverted okay. commas, but we don't know. Prince now demands that Louisa comes to Spaxton, and she does. And he lodges her in one of the cottages until a suitable husband can be found, okay. i.e. till he can get his paws on her money. <laughs> now... Meanwhile, the mother of the sisters, yeah. Emily, she's getting increasingly worried about the hold that this man owes over her daughters, right? Both yeah. spiritual and financial. She's obviously got no independent... Well, she's a widow. Yeah, yeah. So she instructs her son, Edmund, yeah. her nephew, Edward, and her son-in-law to go down to Somerset and to rescue Louisa before she gets married. Sends the boys round. Before it's too late. She sends the boys round. Yeah. Right? We talked about this in our History of Marriage podcast, didn't yeah, we? About yeah. how at that time, yeah. the only way you could get out of a marriage was to send the boys round. Send your sons and your cousins and their nephews, yeah. So in November 1846, the boys travel to Spaxton and by night they succeed in removing her. But it was very much against her will. She didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And people drinking in the Lamb Inn, they told of hearing a woman screaming as she was oh. carried away. They took her to a place in Regent's Park and they effectively held her captive there. But she was insistent about Henry Prince's divinity. She wanted to go back, right? So the family, the way they dealt with that was to have her declared insane. Oh, that's so easy and to do in those days, wasn't it? If a woman sort of... what you did with a hysteria. If a woman was showing any agency... Yeah, um, must be she mad. must be insane. She's yeah. minding being a slave. She must have gone insane. So <laughs> they placed her in uh, Moorcroft House Asylum okay. in January 1848... So she was there for a year and a bit. She escapes and she travels across London. News 
reaches Prince that she's escaped. So he sends William Cobb, remember yep. the one, the engineer, yeah, the yep. um, who's Green now a reverend in the in the abode, to go and meet her right. in a hotel in Cavendish Square. Oh, and yeah. he goes to bring her back, but she's recaptured at Paddington Station. Somebody tips off the asylum that she's there and they come and collect her. So Cobb and Prince, they contact a board called the Commissioners in Lunacy, which is not just a great band name, John. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Commissioners in Lunacy! <laughs> the crowd goes wild. Um, no, they're a public body that's been established by the Lunacy Act of 1845 to oversee asylums and the welfare of mentally ill people in England and Wales. And they make a report which led to Louisa being released. Oh, great. Louisa right. then sues her brother, cousin, and her brother-in-law for abduction and forced imprisonment in 1849. Wow. Um, now, there's a man called Brian Proctor who was part of the Commissioners of Lunacy. He wrote the report and he was called as a medical witness. And the Lord Chief Baron, the judge, he pronounced this famous dictum that then sort of was used to govern how lunatic asylums were, uh, yeah. were run, which was you ought to liberate every person who is not dangerous to himself or others. Is that where we get that phrase from? And that's where we get that phrase from. Oh, that's from. good. Sorry to interrupt, Angela. It's the Lord Chief Baron. Chief that's, Baron, It's quite, yes. quite a grand title, isn't it? I'm not coming across It's quite like, a grand title. Yeah. It's essentially a high court judge, right? Was his surname Baron or just he was a Baron as no, well as no, a Lord and a Chief? No, no, he was a Baron as well and a Lord and a Chief. I think he just had all the titles. Um, Louisa won the case. Uh, she was awarded damages proving that she'd been illegally detained. Okay. And she then, of her own free will, returned to the Agapemini, oh. immediately transferring her wealth and her inheritance was used to buy two bloodhounds, John, oh. to protect the abode of love faithful from any further kidnapping. Now the British public get interested. Are the dogs being looked <laughs> after her properly? Never mind the young women kidnapped and mind brainwashed. Uh, is he being nice to the it's dogs? It's a tricky one, isn't it, this, John? Because obviously she was kept in a lunatic asylum against her will. Was she mad? Was she causing no. any harm to herself or others? Is it her own free will yeah. to go to the, you know, be exploited by... It seems that this poor woman, the bottom line is, she's going to be exploited wherever she goes. Right. She's got no agency, no... No, you that know, is a tricky um, one. You can't say, well, you're, you should give your money away. That's nuts. People are free to give their money to these modern cults, you know, if they want. Yeah. They're not a physical danger to themselves or others. And maybe yeah. not in their interests, but that's not what the law says, is it? But that's not what the law says, exactly. Yeah. So she actually remained in the abode of love until she died in 1858. Oh, okay. Um, two years later, in 1860, her brother and the executor of her yeah. estate, Ralph Nottage, sued Henry Prince and the abode of love right. to recoup the money that she'd given him. And they won the case with costs. So the family got all her money back right. after she died. And the story influenced Wilkie Collins, the novelist. Oh, The Woman in White. The Woman in White. Yeah, and he dedicated his novel, The Woman in White, to Brian Proctor, the, the Commissioner of Lunacy. I know The Woman in White is by uh, Wilkie Collins because um, I've got your notes in front of me. So I thought I'd just, right. just <laughs> <laughs> sort of make it sound like, oh, Wilkie Collins, yes, The Woman in White. The Woman in White. Oh, I was impressed then, John, for a second until I remembered that I'd written it down for you. <laughs> <laughs> so this must have brought it a bit into the public eye, though, didn't it? Yeah, very much so. What was happening behind the walls, people yeah. were starting to learn now, you know, these secrets behind the walls. In 1850, Charles Dickens reported on the Louisa Nottage case. Um, okay. In 1851, Henry Prince was seen at the Great Exhibition, no less, parading with some of his female followers. My God, that's um, not what they planned when they're saying, right, we're going to have this really great thing. We're going to show off the best of Britain. Who's this religious nutter turned up with all his, uh, his all female his... sort of fans? Absolutely. So loads of stories were floating about. Right. Um, and they're not that well verified, but there's a story, for example, about how Prince chose his what he called his Bride of the Week. His what? <laughs> bride of the Week, Ladies and gentlemen, John. it's Pride of the Week. The story goes that there was a revolving stage wow. on which sat the prospective young women yeah. with Prince at the centre yeah. and the bride's husbands would push the stage until it began revolving at high speed. So they're all puking up. All women all puking on. At which point the husbands would stand back and the woman who faced Prince when the stage slowed down to a stop became his bride of the week. Oh my it was God. Like Sort of Wheel of Fortune if it were hosted by Russell Brand. I think we've got, a, we've got a Channel 5 format right there, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just posh spin the bottle, isn't it? It's posh spin the it bottle. Is. You've got to snog I mean, him. You've got to snog him because the bottle's pointing at you. <laughs> as we know from 
like the Jack the Ripper podcast and other yeah. podcasts, the the newspapers of the nineteenth century were quite salacious and didn't you yeah. know, they weren't quite so concerned with accountability as yeah. they might be today. They're not that concerned today. But you know, so we don't know how much of it was it's true, true and how much true. of it was the salacious gossip in the papers. The spinning stage, I'm putting that in the film, I tell you. <laughs> Punch magazine launched a campaign to try to encourage Prince to emigrate to America to join Brigham Young, who was the leader of the Mormons in the Utah desert. They tried to fob him off over there. But there was lots of dark things happening behind those walls. And and there were reported suicides. I mean, suicides are something that did happen. There was one devout believer who was obviously suffering from a psychiatric illness, was found hanging in a tree. Another was was a tax collector from Dorset. He cut his throat after too much of the what they called the soul-destroying dogma of the notorious prince wow. in the papers. Um, and a, a wealthy farmer who'd given everything he had to the abode of love, tried to take his own life, but ended up in an asylum. Oh, well, farmers are always moaning now, aren't they? It's like... Oh, <laughs> Doing my full Alan Partridge now. <laughs> so these scandals are mounting up, yeah. right? And they're hemorrhaging followers and therefore money. Yeah. So something... Big had to be done. And this led to probably the most notorious scandal. And it's the one that really sealed the salacious reputation of the abode of love. And it was known as the great manifestation of God's love for humanity. Okay, it's not as catchy as Bride of the Week. I'm going to be frank Not as catchy as Bride of the Week. (laughs) We're in late 1855, maybe early 1856, and stories vary about what actually happened on the day. Only those that were there know, John, for sure, but it made the national newspapers. And again, you know, whether it was driven by genuine belief in himself as the son of God or just megalomania or whatever, only Henry Prince himself knows. But he later published quite a contrived theological justification okay. for what happened in a pamphlet which was catchily titled The Little Book Open, The Testimony of Brother Prince Concerning What Jesus Christ Has Done by His Spirit to Redeem the Earth. Includes Bride of the Week. Includes <laughs> <laughs> Bride of the Week. In this catchily titled pamphlet, he claims that despite the fact that he was still married and his yeah. wife was still very much alive, even though it was a in-spirit marriage, mm-hmm. he must, John, yes. he must experience sexual union with a woman and a virgin at Okay. That. It's getting a bit um, creepy now. <laughs> it is a little bit. This deflowering of virgins seems to be quite an obsession with Victorian men. Yeah, yeah, it men. was. It was a whole thing. They, they had to, they had to oh, raise yeah. their age of consent and everything, didn't they? After all these yeah, terrible things. Really, yeah, really, really, um, yeah. Do continue. And. Um, Now, by this act, he claimed that he would complete man's salvation and reconciliation with God. By deflowering a virgin. Sounds legit. (laughs) Oh, my God. So by doing this, by deflowering a virgin, he would conquer death and sweep away sin. I think he just wanted to have sex with a young girl. Is basically what well, yeah, it's all a bizarre argument, considering that in both his marriages, he refused any sexual activity. With the older allegedly. spinsters. It's with, the, with the old spinsters, John. But when it came to a young virgin, yeah. things are a bit different, you know. So the young virgins of the community, of which there were several, yeah. were to be prepared. And he was to choose which one of them would be the lucky lady so legend has it that prince is dressed in this scarlet velvet robe and he takes his seat on his throne in the chapel okay and he chooses his bride right he's presented with these beautiful tolly's not happy about it (laughs) no she's furious you can hear her barking in the background (laughs) so he then selected his bride which was believed to be anne willett patterson who was a beautiful young servant uh, and she lived in the community with her mother and three sisters for some years she was dressed in white honiton lace with a long train on her dress and decked in gold. Oh, this is so romantic. Yeah, until, until John, yes. the two allegedly consummated their union on a scarlet-covered table serving as an altar. And the act was supposedly a parody of the Book of Revelations. Oh, it's satire. I'm doing it, satir- I'm doing it ironically. Yeah, I, it's ironic. It's I ironic. Deflowering of a virgin. It was supposed to have been witnessed by Prince's legal wife was there, plus oh my God. 12 men dressed in black and an equal number of women in white, as well as the congregation. So this was in public. This is, well, for entertainment value, it beats the year three nativity play, doesn't it? Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, did it happen like that? We don't know. Oh, my God. Um, so this virgin was basically raped uh, in front of a yeah. crowd of older yeah. men dressed in black and their wives. Yeah. And uh, he said it was a parody of the Book of Revelations. Wow. What's so amazing is that everyone doesn't go, is it just me or is this really not on? 
Yeah, this doesn't seem quite doesn't as seem godly that... as I was led to believe. We may be here yes. under false pretenses. I mean, we don't know. The, the, the legend has it that he he's now in his 40s and he's yeah. still as obsessed with that Song of Solomon as he had been when he was a teenager. He certainly was known to fall prey to nubile young women. Uh, to uh, Claims that he indulged in sexual intercourse in public. They've always fiercely disputed it. Yes, because there's one account, isn't it, from one of the women who would mm. lived there. Like, a, is it a novel or is it an actual um, a memoir? Because it was hotly disputed by those who've been there. Is that the one book you, one of the books you read? There's several books. There's yeah. so the one I've read uh, was by Kate Barlow, who is well, she's the granddaughter of Smith Piggott, who we'll right. come on to in yeah. a minute. So she grew up there, but long after this happens. I think there's one book that's been largely. Well, the, the community dis, discredit dis, it. Yeah, but but they would do that, wouldn't they, really? They would, right, yeah. 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 What happened with this, uh, uh, you know, virgin who was deferred? Well, what happened next horrified everybody because she was pregnant. Okay, that wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't part of the plan um, because Prince had claimed that his divine union could produce no offspring. Oh, no, i tell you what it is. This will be Satan. Well, that's what he quickly claimed. This, of course, had nothing to do with him. This, John, is the work of the devil. Um, and so... Poor, poor girl has a child who was known as the child of Satan, uh, brought up in the community. So she's born there. She brought, she's a quiet, shy girl. I bet she was. Well, which one's your dad? Oh, my dad's not here, but he's Satan. So her mother took her place at Beloved's right hand as the first bride of the lamb. What was she called, the little girl? And the little girl was called Eve. Oh, the temptress. Poor child. Exactly. Her whole life was probably fucked up by this, being brought up. Oh, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, although she was a child of Satan, she was brought up, I think, you know, not sort of shunned by the community okay. in any way. But they believed it was the work of Satan that brought her there, but they corrected right. that by bringing her up in the community, if you see okay. what I mean. Okay, A lot of chat in the lamb in about this, I should think. I bet there was, yeah. And there were other brides. Yeah. Quite how many, we don't know. There's a lot of conjecture in the local villages. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, in the lamb in. Yeah. Um, people were pretty horrified at what the newspapers were reporting. And a sort of siege mentality came over the community, really. They... they locked themselves behind that brick wall, refused admittance to all come, which only fueled the exaggeration of the story. Well, these things follow a pattern, don't they? It's like Waco in Texas or, you know, uh, Jonestown. They well, you always get this sort of siege mentality when they start to behave appallingly. People still try and check it out and then they batten down the hatches and say, all oh, the world's against us and, you know, the end of the world is coming. Absolutely. A bit later in 1867, it's a historian and writer, William Hepworth Dixon, yeah. Um, he was given permission to enter the abode of love and he wrote a book called Spiritual Wives, which wasn't just about the abode. It was about all sorts of these yeah. sort of millenarian and, and Mormonism and other sort of sects. And he published quite a measured account of what he found at the community, but presumably they were on their best behaviour when he was there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> not gonna... So he records this picture of a thriving, if somewhat depleted community um, with the now middle-aged prince at the centre surrounded by... Billiards playing duty. <laughs> that sounds like a good club. Sounds great. We don't know really how much of it was salacious gossip, how much of it really happened. They they kept it very much to themselves. Yeah. Hello, I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the Reverend Beloved Prince, he outlived many of his saints. Yes, but... Uh, he lived to quite a ripe old age, especially for that time. So he's immortal then? Which gives credence. Well, yeah, it gives credence to the claim that he's immortal. Oh, now, in 1896, when he was 85, wow. he initiated the building of a new church in Clapton in North <laughs> oh, London. God. That's not as good as Weymouth. That's as good as the Royal Hotel in Weymouth. Clapton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not Clapton in Essex. No. John, not, not, not Clapton. No, Clapton with a Clapton. P. Yeah, no, I, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's basically... <laughs> yeah. It's where you're the sort of place your kids rent because it's the only place in London they can still afford. No offence, Clapton. I used to work in Clapton. So he initiated the building of this ornate church, um, which was known as the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. 
and it had a 155 foot tower of Portland stone, intricate oak hammer beam roof, yeah. stained glass windows depicting the submission of womankind to man, oh, John. Yeah. Well, mm. something to be said for it. Yeah, well, <laughs> lots of ornate statues. Yeah, there's always um, animals on it and stuff. I looked it up on the internet, actually. It's still there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible yeah, it's building. Still there. You can see it on Street Finder, actually. It's now, uh, it's now a mm. Georgian church, a Georgian Orthodox church, because mm. obviously these people aren't still going there, but they were going right up until no. the 1930s. Although, did you know he had it written into the deeds? Yeah. Um, Henry Prince had it written into the deeds that it never be used as a Church of England place ah, of worship. Ah, that's why the Georgians have got it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Excellent. So um, the church was dedicated, as I said, to the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the first preachers that was appointed there was the Reverend John Hugh Smith Piggott. Oh, we'll be seeing him again. Now, a little bit of background about him, just very quickly. He'd been adopted by a rich family, but then he ran away as a sailor. Uh, he eventually became a missionary. He then joined the Salvation Army, but he was drummed out of the Salvation Army for being too much of a zealot. And like Prince before him, got into trouble for his sermons in the Church of England. Um, and so found his way to the Agapemonites, where his religious zealotry right. was accepted. Um, then in 1899, John, something happened, which came as a bit of a shock to the community. Tell me. Henry Prince died. No, but no, but Angela, he was. You said he was immortal. Mm, yeah, a bit of a problem that you tend not to have funeral plans for someone that's supposed to be immortal. No. <laughs> so, so they didn't really know what to do. So they sort of hurriedly buried him in the front garden in the middle of the night. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, now, that's, that works. Allegedly, before he died, what had happened? The um, Piggott Smith had been to Spaxton and visited, and apparently before he died. Henry Prince had called Piggott Smith beloved, right. which they took to mean, ah, you're his oh, successor okay. like, yeah, after I'll... he died. Right? And also, Piggott Smith was a lot... Like, by this point, Henry Prince is in his 90s, yeah. and the congregation are pretty old as well. Yes, of course, they're, everyone's they're, getting on a bit now. Yeah. You know, not everyone's getting on a bit. And they needed, you know, Radio 4 refer to young listeners as replenishers. Oh, my God. You know yeah. that? They replenish the ones Gonna that die. are dying. So they needed some replenishers. So by having Piggott Smith, who was a young priest in his 30s, they thought they could reinvigorate things, get some youngsters in. Yeah. So they bury Prince in the front garden in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's like a problem um, with that. Some believers left. Yeah. They thought, this is bullshit. He's dead. Right. Others tried to contact him through spiritualist seances right. and things. But Piggott Smith's eyes lit up because he now knows. Chance. Didn't he declare himself as... Jesus as well. He did. In the um, Church of the Ark of the Covenant in September 1902, yeah. he stood up. So this is in, in Clapton. Yeah. He stood up. North East London. And in North East London and told the congregation that he was now the saviour of mankind and the son of God. So so the book I read for this, Angela, was called, this, mm. this old volume I'm holding up to you now from the London Library. It's called, oh, yes. uh, published in 1936. It's called English oh. Messiahs. And this, this book right. is great because it talked about uh, both Prince and uh, Piggott Smith, uh, very much as yeah. recent events. And, um, yeah. and they talk about uh, the church still there, the uh, people still tend it and cut the grass, yeah. but also there's a few of the old ladies still living behind the wall in, in Spaxton. But this is the quote I want to read about uh, what happened that day when he declared himself Messiah. It's pretty and amazing. And it's like, it said, this is just it's the fact it's in Clapton in North East London makes me laugh so much. <laughs> One report had it that he was going to ascend into heaven from Clapton Common. Another, to which more credence was attached, had it that he had promised to turn the pond on the common into wine and then walk across it. I mean, it's one thing if it's in Jerusalem, but, you know, Hackney. It's just, it just... I know, Clapton Pond, I just yeah, can't, can't picture just it. Can't turn it into wine. Also, British messiahs, they shouldn't be telling it. They should be turning it into warm beer, if you don't mind. But, yeah, so it sort of starts all over again, doesn't it, really? It causes riots, yes. essentially. Thousands of people um, turn up, the... don't they? 6,000 people turn up, they're booing and jeering during this inauguration of him as, as son of yeah. God and leader Police of the Academy. And, yeah. yeah, mounted police have to uh, make a, a sort of channel through the crowd for him to be able to make his exit. All the local papers go. It's absolute Chaos. madness yeah, yeah. that happens here. Um, so the abode of love is back in the headlines. And, and this, this is the 20th century now, so, you know. Yeah, so Smith Piggott moves to Spaxton with his wife. And uh, he slips pretty much straight away into Prince's shoes. 
And it has a, the the cult has this mini revival because yeah. they've got this young and apparently very good looking priest, right? So suddenly the wealthy spinsters are back on board. So apparently fifty new young soul brides were chosen. Uh, all of them now have to be vetted by Sister Eve Patterson, who's, who's now grown up devil oh my God, child. The child. So she's found a found right. a job for herself then, uh, vetting the. She's got a senior <laughs> position in the community vetting now. Vetting soul brides. Smith Piggott buys himself a car and a phone because you know. Son of God deserves that. Is that is not in the Bible, Angela. I've read, even the bits I've read, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> he added a laundry, oh, yeah. some new cottages, okay. added new stock to the rundown farm. Uh, but most of all, he busied himself in his capacity as heavenly bridegroom. Oh, my God. He's going to have a good time. There's a book by Donald McCormick called Temple of Love in which he writes, he says, if not a sexual maniac, he was at least a man obsessed with sex in his daily That's life. most men, isn't it? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's, he's now, um, yeah, really sort of taken over Prince's role with... It sounds like he's given up the idea um, of the uh, celibate bit. He's just having 50 soul brides and... Well, he's got... He's yeah, got a harem I think there by it, the sound of it. He's already got a wife, yeah. remember... Chief soul, um, bride. However, chief soul bride. No, no, she wasn't his chief. No, she, he had a As wife, well. a proper wife already, right. um, Catherine. But now he's in the abode of love. Miss Ruth Ann Priest is chosen to be his chief soul bride. And he has three children with her yeah. who are named Glory, Power and Life. Oh, what lovely names. Um, <laughs> although later on they became known as David, Pat and Levita. Um <laughs> David, what's your real name, Glory? <laughs> the, the book that I read is by Levita's daughter, Kate Barlow. Oh, okay. um, that's a book called The Abode of Love. And if she writes about being a child in the 50s, wow. sort of growing up in the shadow of the abode of love after it was all over, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. but just surrounded by these sort of slightly batty old ladies that are left there. So his actual wife, Catherine Smith Piggott, was just sort of busied herself with charity and apparently in the local area and village she was remembered by the locals with great affection she actually did stuff for the village and you know made herself useful whereas you know the community sort of kept itself to itself really how long did he keep, keep going for how did it go carry on he he died in 1927 wow it's quite um, recent really Again, Messiah's not supposed to die no. right no. it's supposed to be immortal there is a clue though John yeah um that he probably didn't really think he was a messiah and that is that he left a will oh, okay so two years later by 1929 there was only 33 women left wow in How the sad. abode of love and then one girl and three men um and the communities became just sort of full of disillusioned old women and frustrated and disappointed young women yes i mean the, the, this, book I, this book i read in the 36 describes them, a few of them still being behind the walls there living out their lives not quite sure what to do with themselves yeah, realizing they've made a probably made made a terrible mistake you know yeah and they were still there until the 50s so wow. um as the old guard died, the sort of men died, Sister Ruth. So Ruth, the, the chief soul bride, yeah. she became the leader, really, of these sort of band of old women that still the live there. She she lived there till she was 90. Um, she died in 1956. And her funeral was the first time that outsiders were admitted to the chapel within the walls. Um, and then after she died, really, the community closed. So this book by Kate Barlow, she was... Um, like I say, Levita's uh, daughter. So she, Piggott Smith was her grandfather. Um, and she was sort of brought up, I think she would have been born in the 40s and sort of didn't really know all this history and gradually uncovered it as she became a teenager and sort of learned more about her family and what really went on there. It's a really interesting book, The Abode of Love, it's called. It's sort of about her and yeah. her and her sisters discovering this history of her grandfather and her parents. So what happened, yeah, so what happened to the property then? Is it all just... So in the end, it closed. The property was finally sold off in 1958. And now it's just a series of private houses and flats. The two heavenly bridegrooms, their remains are still under the front garden oh, somewhere. Under the rhubarb. Under the rhubarb. Incidentally, the um, house that Piggott Smith lived in in London now belongs to Vanessa Phelps. Well, that could be a whole new cult. That could Couldn't be it? the Vanessa Phelps cult. It's like, it sort of is a version of Big Brother, actually, this thing, isn't it? It's like you're always sort of enclosed in this place and they're encouraged yeah. on Love Island or something. It's sort of, reading this book, it's kind of this image of these kind of old ladies living just sort of old lady lives, you know, drinking tea and, and reading the Bible sort of, a bit. And, uh, yeah. Reading the Bible a bit and, and just sort of existing in this community. It sounds just like a 
an old people's home, really. I suppose so, but it's just, it's just By the end of it. happy memories sort of, of the abode of love, or maybe not so happy memories, I imagine, of these men who, knows, who sort of sexually I imagine them. some of them feel that they, um, but I, yeah, but, maybe had wasted. Maybe that's why they stayed there, because they didn't want to feel like they were wrong, you know. Yeah. And so, it's sort of it's easier to dig down, isn't it? Yeah. To, um, so it's interesting down. that uh, the British uh, sex cults, because this this uh, or religious cults. I mean, this book I was read, English Messiahs, is about a, a series mm. of different English uh, religious cults. They sort of faded mm. away. The American ones kept going, haven't they? Because you still, the, you know, the Mormons and you know, so many of them yeah. have uh, become massive churches. Um, I mean, the thing I'll say about this, and at the risk of offending all our Christian listeners is that my opinion on Jesus and the disciples is he was just a charismatic bloke who declared himself the son of God, like so many people have throughout history. And his one just yeah. happened to stick. His was the one that sort it of really, spread, really caught. It caught on. <laughs> really the, whole, caught on. the whole Roman Empire was the, you know, the infrastructure by which this story travelled. And it was just that particular one became the default religion of Europe. But he was mm. just another religious cult. You know, he's just another yeah. Messiah who said, I'm the son of God. And everyone went, oh, OK, I'll go with him. And okay. Except the whole yeah. continent and, and world ha- fell for it instead of just a few old ladies in Somerset. Yeah. Thank you for uh, uh, your Christian uh, hate letters. I'm about pouring in now yeah. the, the messages <laughs> of, of damning I just me let to you hell. speak then, John. I'm nodding, but I just let you speak. Muhammad, of course, absolutely genuine. Not going to say anything bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> not, no, not going there, guys. <laughs> We're reversing up this lane very quickly. Beep, beep, beep. Caution. Caution. Podcast that is reversing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you, Angela, for taking me through the world of the abode of love, the Agapemonites. 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 I'd never heard of these guys until you suggested the podcast. Quite. Yeah, it's quite. uh, Do you know, I should have said as well that they did sort of spread out across the world a little oh, they, they had little sex oh, in, in norway and yeah. sweden as well yeah. and uh, and some in america so they did spread out a little bit the agapemonites but it never really caught on uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast and you are a wealthy spinster please marry john <laughs> uh, if otherwise um otherwise uh give us five stars on the old it will be a soul marriage it'll be a soul though, marriage john. celibate Completely marriage celibate. <laughs> yeah <laughs> my age you know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah give us five stars uh, or all your inheritance either way we don't mind and yep. um, we'll be back next week with another gripping episode of we are history we will don't forget to follow us on twitter at we are history pod and we'll see you next week see you next week guys Cheerio. bye, bye.